there's a moment, and I think this is something that I definitely notice in people as they mature, um, as, as I guess kind of technical creative people, is there's the moment that you spend the, your early career trying to work out which software will get the thing made. And then at a certain point, you realize that actually the software is sort of irrelevant and it's kind of easy on lots of levels. But the genius and the stuff that, that elevates these great projects is, is just really good ideas and execution of those ideas on like a creative level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen, and I hope everyone out there is staying safe, staying healthy, wearing a mask, doing what you can to flatten the curve and be considerate to those around you. Today on the podcast, I am really excited to be talking with Mike Bithel, game developer, uh, and a really thoughtful guy about the state of indie game development. Mike Bithel is the creator of Thomas Was Alone, an indie game that has sold over one million copies. He's also the creator of games such as Volume, Subsurface Circular, Earthshape, and he was the director uh, for John Wick Hex, a turn-based shooter based on the John Wick movies. His newest creation is a narrative fiction podcast, North Star Rising, which you can find right now wherever your podcast can be downloaded. Again, that is North Star Rising. Now, for, for those who don't know, Thomas was alone, kind of this massive success of an indie game. It, it took the world by storm. And uh, from the outside, it felt like Mike Biffle was an overnight sensation. But of course, uh, it's never quite the same story uh, when you are the person who the overnight sensation stuff is happening to. And uh, I was so uh, fascinated to hear Mike's description of what it was like to, to make it big, to be able to make a career out of his passion. I think there are a lot of interesting stories here, a lot of interesting insights about what it means to be a creator, about what it's like to try to make it in the indie game world, about the challenges, the joys, the trials, the tribulations, uh, and the amazing opportunities uh, that Biffle has had. So I really hope you enjoy this chat. And if you do enjoy it, I'd appreciate it if you left a review for this podcast on Apple Podcasts or share about this podcast uh, on whatever social media platform you prefer. And of course, you can always follow this podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W, and also email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Got quite a bit of great feedback on last week's episode in which I reflected on one year of DIY indie podcasting um, thanks so much for all those emails. It really means a lot to me, especially because, you know, when you make a podcast like that, you're kind of sending it out into the world. Here's my thoughts. Here's my feelings out into the world. And you're just hoping uh, that the universe is going to take care of it. And uh, a lot of you listeners, you know how to take care of uh, my thoughts and feelings out there. So really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, this was an awesome chat. I hope you enjoy it uh, and that you get a lot out of it as I did. Stick around for my weekly recommendations. And uh, thanks for listening. Here's my conversation with Mike Biffle. Mike Biffle, welcome to Culturally Relevant. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, I'm relaxing. It's a nice summer's day here. Uh, it's been good. It's been good. Uh, all right. Well, so glad to have you on. Uh, something I like to start with on the podcast is breaking in stories. Uh, mm. So tell us about how you first broke into the video game industry. Uh, so yeah, I, I got lucky basically. I was uh, so as a student, I was I wanted to be an animator. I wasn't very good at it. Um, so and I was talking to a lecturer uh, about that, <laughs> about not being very good at it. And uh, he basically suggested to me that like I I was into video games, and he suggested like have you considered like video games and video game design in particular? And I'll be honest, like how, how, I, how does I think... one be not good at animation? Just out of curiosity, like what when you say you're not good at it, what does that mean exactly? What I probably mean, so in in retrospect, looking back, what I probably mean was I was not immediately good at animation. And I think that's something that's a problem I have is that if I don't immediately get something, I get very frustrated and assume yeah. that I'm never going to get there. I'm quite, I guess, lazy in that respect. <laughs> so I think I was just starting out. Um, but in terms of in terms of not being good, I think I was just maybe not interested. Like maybe I I wasn't I wasn't doing what I wanted. And I think as well with animation, a lot of it. There's a lot of work you have to do in animation to tell stories. It's an incredibly my, – my girlfriend works in animation and the amount of effort and energy they have to put in to kind of just get to the starting point of telling a story in animation, I think I was just – I was too impatient for. Um, and, and therefore, like, you know, when someone came to me and said, why not be a game designer? 
that was that was interesting to me and and specifically i think because i'd never really known it was a job you could do i think like a lot of people i think people know more now about the industry than they did when i was just starting out but like it was definitely a thing where i didn't i didn't realize that you could be that there was a job i thought i just i assumed computers made them you know i just assumed it was like a there was a computer in a corner and the computer generated the game and there were artists because i could recognize the visuals i could recognize the the artistry of that but the idea that there would be creative people in charge of like what are we going to do how's this going to play how's the story going to work all of these kind of creative choices it hadn't occurred to me that that was like a job you could have um so i kind of i think when someone just kind of said to me that that was maybe a job you could have that just kind of opened the door to me of like oh that's i'm gonna i'm gonna try i'm gonna explore that and and see what the potential is um so i i, I switched courses basically at university and jumped into game design um and uh and yeah, the rest is the rest is history. I just kind of worked from there. I was also very lucky in my timing. Uh, this was a time in the UK industry uh, for for it, I guess kind of the 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 two thousands, the early kind of two thousands and and early twenty tens. The British games industry was kind of not booming, but doing very well because we were basically cheap Americans. Um, we were there was this thing where you could you could kind of basically hire a team of British game developers to make a game kind of set in America effectively. Um, and we were cheaper than you'd pay for Americans. And we watched the same movies. We had the pop culture kind of awareness. We knew how traffic signals in America worked so we could make kind of passable American content. Uh, and at that stage, because of, I guess, uh, you know, financial differences, like it, we were cheaper. What happened shortly after that, after I entered the industry, so it was very easy to get my first job. What happened shortly after I joined the industry was um, Canada basically introduced a bunch of kind of tax credits uh, and processes that made them cheap Americans. Uh, and that led to the kind of the British games industry actually kind of going into a bit of a bad position because that those old jobs dried up. Um, so I kind of came in just before um the industry kind of hit some hard times so i was just i was kind of i was just got my foot in the door just in that moment before that um and the, the industry is kind of recovering now but it was it was a touch and go for a few years there what was your first job uh designing games it was so i went to a company called blitz games um which was yeah largely kind of making licensing stuff licensed stuff so my first the first game i fully worked on was kind of, it was called tack and the guardians of gross mm. um you know, illustrious kind of uh, literary uh, project, um, but no, it was a, it was like it was it was the kind of thing that definitely wouldn't be made now. It was a um, it was a game about uh, a, like a, tr a a tribal kid living uh, in like a magical forest, um, and he went on adventures basically. And and there was a I think it was a TV show of it. Yes, it was very, Nickelodeon. It was, a, uh, it was Nickelodeon TV show. Yes, yeah. that's right. And I so so I was working on that. Um, as a, that was my first kind of level design job. Uh, and then I went and worked on um, a Kung Fu game. Then I worked on iCarly for a bit, which again is a Nickelodeon uh, property, which was like a, it was a show about um, some kids who start a YouTube channel. It was weirdly kind of ahead of its time. Like it was weirdly aware of that kind of pop culture coming along, coming down the river. Um, so I worked on those kind of games. So kind of licensed things, kind of smaller smaller games and kind of this was diff this was in the period where kind of Wii party games were a big deal so there was lots of that kind of uh, you know games where you had to shake the remote and do stuff um i just mind shaking the remote there which which wasn't good um <laughs> but yeah it was, it, was, it was kind of this weird this weird time but yeah so so worked on those and and kind of those were my jobs for i guess the first kind of three or four years i'm um, just kind of learning my stripes uh in the uh Film industry, like I know a lot more about uh, how films are made, right? Mm -hmm. I consider a director who can move between different genres to be like very, very highly skilled. You know, there's very few directors I feel uh, that can tackle different genres in a very short period of time and, and do them well. You know, the ones that come mm -hmm. to mind immediately, I'm thinking of like Martin Scorsese or oh, Danny yeah. Boyle, right? Like these are directors who make like such a wide variety of movies uh, in different genres and, and do such a great job of them. Uh, you're making levels for Tack and the Guardians and iCarly, <laughs> and um, I think you also worked on Dead to Rights, which is one of my favorite games it on did. the original Xbox. 
the first one at least was and i said i was gonna say i, I think i probably worked on the one that came after the one you liked so yeah. I, don't think... <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't get to that one but i love the original um because of those those amazing takedowns uh and i'm yeah. curious like did that re- does that require kind of the same level of uh adaptation that it might for film director or is level design kind of really similar regardless of what genre you're in that's interesting i i'm i'm really cautious about like because i i don't know much about the film industry because i've not well i guess i've worked i guess I, I learned quite a bit in the last couple of years working a little more adjacent to it but like generally kind of not super familiar i guess it's probably similar in that there's there's a lot of shared stuff you know, you're, you're, you are, you are kind of using overlapping skills, like in the same way as a filmmaker kind of, you're still pointing a camera at characters and trying to tell stories. I think the same is true in games is there are certain things you can kind of lean on certain kind of skill sets and experiences you, you gain. I think, I think actually possibly you gain and can bring more interesting stuff to games um, in different genres because you've got that perspective from something else. It's something that, um, you know, fast forward to now where we've got, you know, I run a, a company and we, 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 we have a team that team, got, you know, is similarly jumping genres. And it's interesting when you see someone apply something from something they learned on the last project to something in a completely wildly different kind of genre space. Um, it will kind of often trigger off ideas and lead to originality that is it's original in that it's original to that genre, but actually kind of, you've kind of sneakily just kind of stolen something from another genre and brought it across. And, I, and that's something I admire about, you bring up Danny Boyle, who's like one of my heroes, um, like the way he kind of will jump into a genre and make it feel so fresh because he's bringing in all that stuff he's he's learned elsewhere or that he's 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 got these kind of trademarks from elsewhere. So you can put him on like, a you know, the the the, the a biopic um the steve jobs one and he'll bring in like oh let's put some projections in let's bring some of that kind of, <laughs> right uh kind of club design stuff that he's he did in his earlier kind of work and you just have all these weird kind of overlaps and, and choices that that can kind of come from someone who has, has who's jumped around a bit and done different things so i think it's useful i don't think it necessarily i think it's also indicative of just how those kind of kind of game studios in the uk back then were working is that we would be bounced around projects a lot so it wasn't necessarily that like it was any indicator of like me being very good it was just we were just all being moved around as as and when things was things were available or work was there to be done right but it is interesting that i've now that i have the freedom to basically kind of work on whatever i want i've found that i am still following that pattern of wanting to kind of jump around a lot because i think it's it's also just more interesting for me i don't want to get stuck doing the same thing over and over yeah 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 so i assume it was when you were working at blitz games that uh, when you started having the idea for thomas was alone is that right that's right yeah well i was i was kind of i was working it was that period it was um i guess it would have been like 2008 2009 and um there were just a lot of indie games were kind of happening as a thing, as a cultural moment. Um, and it, I, I mean, indie games, it's, it's, you know, they'd existed obviously since the beginning of games. Like there had always been kind of small games made by small teams, but it was becoming a thing where those games were starting to become more visible. They were becoming more, they were finding audiences basically. And, and people were talking about them. And as someone who had kind of basically come into the industry uh, into a very kind of in the British games industry, very established games industry uh, that was kind of following a pattern. Um, it was very surprising to me that you could make a game on your own. It, 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 in retrospect, it seems really stupid to not have known that. But I remember playing there was a game called World of Goo um, mm. that was that was just this fantastic little two D uh, puzzle game uh, that was famously made by a couple of people from um, I think it was EA. They were kind of they did this as a hobby project. I remember playing that on my lunch break on my work computer. And and realizing that basic like in a in as humble a way as I can say it, like that I had the skills to go and make something myself and that I was allowed to. It was kind of this permission it gave to people like me who were kind of sat in big studios to kind of go, no, you can actually go and make something on your own. And it doesn't have to be the big game that you would make in a big studio. You you know, people are accepting of these these smaller projects. So I started just prototyping some things. Um, and, and actually like Thomas was alone, wasn't the first thing I prototyped. It was just, it was basically like a, a little kind of idea. It was me and my, uh, me and my mate Daz, um, who I still, he still works for me. He does, um, uh, concept art for all of our games. Me and Daz, we used to do a thing where we would like introduce each other to movies and one of the movie, uh, we'd, we'd just, you know, have a movie night and watch two films together and bring a film. And I remember bringing, um, a brother where art thou? 
and you know it's a good film i like it um uh i can't remember if he did um but but one of the things that one of the images that is in that movie that i felt was was amazing as like a source of like comedy and character stuff was the the chain gang scene where they're kind of tied together uh and i just remember watching that and saying there should be a game where you're like two characters who are tied together um and that would be that'd be kind of funny but also like there'd be some interesting kind of problem solving puzzle stuff there of how do you get through environments how do you how do you work as a team so i started prototyping it but the hard bit was putting the chain in so i just didn't i made the game and i had two characters and you could switch between them and move around and I realized how complicated it would be at that point. I mean, nowadays it'd be incredibly easy, but back then kind of to add a chain between the two characters that would kind of constrain their movement. So I just made it so one of them could jump higher. And that was compelling and it was fun. So I kept playing with it. And, and that was ultimately what led to Thomas Was Alone, which for anyone listening who's not aware of it, is basically it's like a platforming game. So kind of like Mario, um, but it's just all rectangles jumping around and different rectangles. You know, some of them are big and can float. Some of them can jump high. Some of them can't. And you kind of work your way through a level with those characters. Um, it's a really simple idea, but just kind of, yeah, played with it um, and iterated it through. It's interesting how you talk about realizing that one person could, like you had all these different re- realizations. One was, hey, wow, there's actually a whole team of people uh, <laughs> behind these video games. And then the pendulum swung back the other way when you realized, wait, I could do this myself, right? Um, yeah, yeah. YouTube, I mean, basically, it, yeah. yeah, it's basically like a it's a story of me. <laughs> me being ignorant and then becoming slightly less ignorant that's kind of been my whole career um (laughs) yes but but it's but it's been yeah but that was it was kind of yeah it's those realizations and i think when they when they hit you and if you're lucky enough to be someone who sees that early enough often you can be one of the people who kind of takes advantage of that and i I, you know thomas was alone definitely wasn't one of the first kind of successful indie games but we were kind of we were i think guessing i guess it was in that kind of second wave um and that was because yeah i was lucky that that dawned on me at that moment and i could go and do something about it there are many amazing indie games coming out around that time um uh, dear esther stanley parable limbo and braid uh you talked about how these inspired you to look at what you were capable of but did any of them inspire you in any other way aesthetically or uh from a storytelling perspective yeah, I mean, I remember, I definitely remember like Limbo. Limbo was interesting because Limbo was like, it was a, a little like online video of just like, so they, they'd made like a prototype of it and they put that video out. And I think that video hit the internet like years before Limbo actually came, kind of came out as a real game, mm. just back when it was like an experiment. I remember seeing that and being, that's amazing. It's that, the, the, that thing of the, the kind of the dual realization of that's amazing. That's, that's visually so exciting and different to anything I've seen before. And then once that settles in looking at it as, you know, someone who makes stuff on computers and going, but I can see how they did it. Like the, the, there's a real, there's a moment. And I think this is something that I definitely notice in people as they mature um, as, as I guess kind of technical creative people is there's the moment that you spend the, your early career trying to work out which software will get the thing made. And then at a certain point you realize that actually the software is sort of irrelevant and it's kind of easy on lots of levels, but the genius and the stuff that, that elevates these great projects is is just really good ideas and execution of those ideas on like a creative level you know i looked at limbo um in particular and i remember thinking i could do that and then realizing but it wouldn't occur to me to do that and and it's actually really hard to like creatively solve all the problems they had to solve here um and that's kind of this it brings it down to earth in in the sense that it's accessible and you can actually kind of see yourself achieving something um but then also you you gain a new respect for just the the, the creative skill of the people working on it um it's that classic thing when you see something anything impressive on youtube like there'll be someone in the comments saying which software did you use to make this and you realize and that's always the young person in the comments that's always the kind of the teenager who's just like assuming somewhere there's a button they can press that will just make stuff that's that cool appear on a computer screen and then and then a certain level of maturity you realize oh no i have to I have to become a better creative in order to achieve that. There is no secret magic button that all these people know about. That if I just found out where it was, all my stuff would look good. And I think that, so I think there was, there was that. Limbo definitely jumped out. I think Stanley Parable was interesting in that it just, and Dear Esther as well, actually, that they, they kind of demonstrated that storytelling was possible. Um, and Thomas Was Alone, what was weird with Thomas Was Alone was it was never really meant to be a story game. It wasn't, I wasn't a writer. I wasn't, I'd never told a story really in a video game before. That was something other people did. 
Um, the only reason Thomas was learning how to story was because I realized towards the end that I needed one and wrote one and put it in. And then that turns out to have been the thing people liked about the game, which which kind of was a really weird kind of realization. Again, there you go, me, me being ignorant and then finding something out. Um <laughs> That was the that was kind of there was this moment of like no this is this is the thing people like I'm you know it turns out I'm a writer I didn't know I was a writer until I wrote something and people liked it <laughs> you know and it's it's uh, it was a weird a weird transition to go to there and I think but I think things like Stanley Parable and Dear Esther kind of gave permission for like storytelling in games which which again had pre existed but you know we I'd always associated kind of storytelling with games with like expensive cutscenes and high polygon characters and. And actually, you know, you could. It occurred to me that you could probably tell a good story with rectangles. Yeah, with um, just voiceover, basically. Right. With just voiceover, just voiceover yeah. And, yeah. And 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 like you know, and and with Thomas was alone, you know, <laughs> bringing in like a really good storyteller to tell the story. Um, a guy called Daniel Wallace, who basically I was just kind of listening to his. I was a big fan of his his audio books and his stories, and I um. I was just writing basically kind of fanfic, kind of in a Danny Wallace-y style. Bit of, you know, bit of Terry Pratchett, bit of Danny Wallace, bit of Douglas Adams, the stuff I usually rip off. And um, and I couldn't find a voice actor who I thought could deliver it, like, to the standard I wanted. Uh, so I just, like, I think I just literally added him on Twitter and just said, can, I, can you be in my game, please? And, and, and Danny's whole thing is he says yes to weird stuff. Um, so he was <laughs> up for it. Wow. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Cause you were, uh, no offense, but you were, you're basically nobody back then, right? I was a nobody. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, it was, it was, it was a massive, like it was, yeah, no, I don't know why he said yes <laughs> to this day and I'm scared to ask him. Well, um, I, I assume that he was going to take a look like, I, I assume that he was like, I'll take a look at whatever you have. And then he looked at it and recognized, uh, that it was very, very good and decided to, to do it, I right? genu- I, I love that version. I love. <laughs> I find that incredibly. I genuinely think he would have done it if it had been terrible, just for fun. Like he's so Danny. Danny's. Danny's. He actually wrote a book. Um, he wrote the book that the Jim Carrey movie Yes Man is based. Have you ever seen the Jim Carrey Yes Man? Movie? I have not, but I'm aware of the premise of it. Yeah. So that's based on a year of Danny's life. Danny basically set himself the challenge of saying yes to everything for a year. Wow. Um. And wrote a book about like all of the ridiculous situations that that got him into. So you so you just you just lucked out that you asked him during that year, then basically. No, I didn't know. So it was so that was years <laughs> before. But I think it just I think he, I think that process he learned that he liked to say yes to weird stuff and see where it went. Mm. And um, I guess I guess in a weird way, Thomas was loans a brilliant demonstration because he won the BAFTA for that. Right. Um. So like I I feel like that's probably a good demonstration of his of his philosophy is saying yes to start hey you say yes to an idiot who tweets you and you get up after that's cool um, <laughs> so I think I think I think he's just someone who's very open to nonsense and I I respect I respect that approach no I don't I I, I think I'm sure I, I I can't even remember if he read if he if he read the script before he said yes I feel like maybe he didn't I feel like maybe I didn't even send it to him until he'd agreed because I was embarrassed by it because I was you know just starting out i didn't know if it was any good um but yeah just got lucky again lucky well it's it's the tagline of this whole uh, conversation so yeah uh so how did you finance the the game because it was uh i assume you paid danny um and also there's like other assets and music that had to be created like did, did you do everything like did you pay people and if so how did you how did you finance thomas was alone so I did, um, so most of it was most of like, in terms of like hours spent, most of it was me. So I coded it. <laughs> I did the art. The art is literally just rectangles. So I, I, I did all that. Um, I could manage, I could just about manage that. Um, but what was nice was cause I'm a, um, I was a graphic designer kind of within the games industry. You kind of wear a lot of hats and graphic design was always something I'd kind of been doing. So I could, I could tell you, I knew how to take a rectangle and make it as good as I could make that rectangle look. Mm. Um, which turns out was super useful um, in terms of like just balancing and composition and all that stuff. Um, and then, and then, yeah, basically the two other people involved were, were Danny on voice and a guy called Dave Housden who did the the music with Danny. Yeah. I paid him. I got, I did a crowdfund for like a few grand just to kind of cover the recording costs and getting all that done. And then um, with, with Dave who did the composition, he, um, he did it like for free up front and then obviously got like a percentage of the, the game sales, which, was incredibly bold of him to do but obviously given how well the game's done he's he's done all right out of that i noticed the music company shows up in one of the title 
credits, right? Which is which yeah. meant that he was like a co-producer, basically. I mean, honestly, what it actually means is that I know that games start with logo screens, so I had to put something <laughs> up. That was genuinely the conversation. Was basically like I. So he, I mean, he wasn't a co-producer or any kind of like technical or legal way. We weren't really dealing with like guild rules or anything. We were just kind of making stuff. So I knew it had to have splash logos because games have splash logos. So the two things I put up was I put up his. We we he made a logo and we put that on there, and I put my Twitter handle on there. And which, in retrospect, was the best business decision I ever did because it meant that my Twitter then blew up as, a, as the game did. Right. Well. I just assumed when I saw it, oh, that person probably contributed music yeah. for free in exchange for like points off the back end or something like that. I mean, that's, that is what it was, but yeah. it wasn't like there was no that wasn't why he got the splash. He got the splash because probably at like 11 p.m. I sent him a message going, the game needs splash screens. Can I put like your name? Because there was no one else involved in it. Right. So right. it's just the three of us. Right, I should have right, put right. Daniel. Danny Wallace should have got a logo on there as well. I should have done that. But um, <laughs> but yeah, just a, one of those weird, one of those weird kind of situations. But we were just, I was just trying to make it look like a real game. Um, <laughs> uh, and so it, well, I, I want to ask you about uh, the story. You know, your the story of Thomas was alone really reminded me a lot of uh, Stanley Parable, to be honest with you. Um, mm -hmm. beca just because obviously, you know, British voiceover person kind of adding a lot to what is happening on screen. But also, it almost felt like a deconstruction. Like, Stanley Parable, in my opinion, is a deconstruction of video games, right? It's like, mm -hmm. here we are pointing out the things that make video games work, what makes them funny, what makes them weird. And that, to me, felt not exactly the same thing as what you're doing with Thomas is Alone. Uh, but it, it almost felt, in some ways, like a deconstruction of, like, simplistic platform puzzle solver things, right? Like, where, where mm. it, hey... Um, uh, I've played the game before where you make the shape go into the hole and so on. And uh, But like, what if those shapes actually had personalities? What if they had feelings and such? Then you took it up another level because the game is actually about the emergence of AI. So how did that come into the picture? Because already, from what I just said, it's already quite a heavy lift in my opinion, but then you kind of made it about something even bigger than that. Yeah, well, it was it was honestly it was just it's I think like a lot of these things and, and and this is actually one area where I know we do differ from game to film um, is with film. Uh, it's fascinating to me how many major decisions are made early on films. And it, it makes sense because you have to go and physically kind of uh, record it somewhere with actors and you have to do the whole thing. So you make so you write a screenplay and that screenplay basically becomes like a relatively locked in version of what that movie is. You, you know, obviously you, you change things on the day on the stage and you, you edit, obviously editing is massive, but like you, you make a lot of your decisions up front. Whereas with games, it's almost kind of the opposite in that you kind of, you start, it's more like improv. You're kind of building stuff up as you go, you're working out uh, what makes sense. And then often those justifications and those kind of creative, those decisions that feel like this is overarchingly what they were going for is the decision you make right at the end. And that, that's kind of true of like something like Thomas Was Alone, where uh, Thomas Was Alone started um, without any story or characters. Um, the, the first version of it was like a little flash game I put out. And it didn't have characters, didn't have story. It was just these rectangles jumping around. And I went, I was, I was coding it one weekend. And again, Daz, actually, a friend of mine was like, you need a break. You, I, you know, I've, <laughs> I've seen you online. You're just coding. Or you've been coding for days, you know, kind of like, um, I guess, the opening of like a social network where it's just a guy sit, sitting, coding and drinking beers. He's like, you're coming out the house. You've got to get out of your space. Let's go. And we went and got some uh, went and got Mexican food. And we were chatting and he, and he was asking about the game. And he was like, you know, well, what are you going to do with it? Um, I said, I'll, I'll put it online. He said, oh, what's the net? What's the name? What are you thinking name wise? And I said, and I said, I don't know, like rectangle friends or something. Like, I guess they're, <laughs> they're rectangles. And he was like, no, no, no. you got to be pretentious. you got to you got to give it something kind of moody and evocative. So like, I don't know, Jeremy was feeling uncomfortable or something. And I was like, that's that does sound more. That sounds cleverer than what I'm. So I was, so it became Thomas was alone with no like goal of telling a story. Just literally the game opened with a title screen that said Thomas was alone. Put that online, and then in the comments, people were referring to the red rectangle as Thomas, and it just and 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 the other rect. There was a character. There was a rectangle like a small orange square in it, and everyone in the comments was like, that orange square must be so pissed off that he can't jump as high. And I was just reading all these comments and this the way people are connected with these characters. 
And I just thought that's amazing. There was like there was when you say these characters, you mean the shapes on the screen, right? They're yeah. just the rectangles. Yeah, they they personified it. They yeah. figured out there was one. There was one like multi-paragraph comment that was convinced it was based on Seinfeld, a show <laughs> I'd, I've still never seen an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> but they were like, this is this character's was it Kramer? This character's Seinfeld. This character's whatever. And they like worked it out. Um, and I was just like, this is a this is amazing thing that happens in the human brain that people are kind of anthropomorphizing these rectangles. So I so th that's where like, oh well, let's tell a story then. Let's have characters and blah 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 blah. And then and then I mean, it was not going to have it was not going to have voiceover originally. It was going to be all kind of motion typography, kind of text coming up in the environment. But then that became really kind of a pain from a level design point of view that I had to make space for all the text. So I was like, I guess it's voiceover. So you go to a voiceover. So all these decisions are kind right. of problem solving as you go. They're not, it's not that you sit down and go, I'm going to make something that talks about friendship and the emergence of AI and what that might mean. It's more, okay, they're rectangles and they jump around. I know I want them to be characters. Cool. They're going to be characters. They're going to have names. What are they? Well, I, if I do any story that makes sense in like a literal, like their co-workers at a bank, then people are going to comment on the fact that this isn't that this is just rectangles that there's no like it doesn't look like they're in a bank mm. so it's like i guess it's got to be abstract what's abstract computers i guess oh maybe they're ai oh that'd be interesting like that, that explains why a character would be out of their depth at the start they're, they're learning they're figuring stuff out that's that's kind of an ai thing oh what if we did terminator but skynet was nice that's interesting and then you just kind of you just kind of start piling on those decisions um and if you're lucky it comes together but it, it has been a really interesting thing kind of we did you know recently we did john wick and and working with the john wick guys where for them you know you you have to make these decisions right up front because that's that's how you get a movie you you know you got to get keanu on set and say the lines and you got to make sure that the, you film the right fight scenes you can't be figuring it out in the in the edit suite um, some films right. they try that, but it doesn't usually go well, right? So I would, I would say one movie, one notable example of where they've done something like that is Mission Impossible Fallout, um, where uh, it, to hear the director, Christopher McQuarrie, describe it, they, they basically improvise the entire movie. Um, they're shooting sense. scenes with, you know, saying like, we have to get the briefcase and they don't even know what is in the briefcase yet. You know, like that's, he talks about it quite that. frequently. Yeah. Um, but I, need to go and listen to some of that. I, I think there is, uh, a, a big difference, right? There's similarities. The similarities are filmmaking and game making both involve a lot of improvisation, uh, and problem solving. But the thing that's notable about what you said to me just now is that, um, because you can put games out in in different forms, right? Like there, there's this kind of iteration that isn't as prevalent in filmmaking, right? Because you put a basic version of the game out there and then seeing people respond to it and then, then that feeds into like what you're then creating next. Uh, in movies, that generally doesn't happen unless you're Zack Snyder in the Snyder Cut, um, <laughs> you know? Hmm. Which is like extremely rare for something like that to happen where... Like fan, uh, let's say outrage or fan fan requests uh, can drive the creation of something in the way that you just described. So I think that's something that's unique uh, uh, yeah. to games. Yeah, and also practicalities, right? With the Snyder Cut, the thing that's most interesting is I wonder how much of that decision is tied to the reality that no one can film anything right now. Like I wonder, like is I, I wonder if that's going to be a bit of a trend of like yeah. recutting or rejigging stuff you already have the footage in the can for that you can go and iterate on stuff kind of in the edit room with ADR with kind of more special effects work. I, I wouldn't be shocked if there's more of that just because it's the only stuff people can produce right now. Um, so that, I, I wonder how much that is also a product of the of the of the specific times we're living through. Well, that also, but the reason it's rare is because e even the Snyder Cut's going to cost in the tens of millions of dollars. So, mm. you know, it's not like you can just go in and, hey, oh, hey, let's just pull this uh, <laughs> off the shelf and like, you know, uh, remaster it. It's, it. It takes millions of dollars. Um, mm. Whereas, as you pointed out, Thomas was alone was made by primarily just you. So, according um, to IMDb, Thomas was alone cost five million dollars to produce. Oh, um, so go. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna compete with IMDb. They they <laughs> I'm sure they know what they're talking about. Um, so, you, <laughs> so you get Thomas was alone out into the world, and I read this interview uh -huh. that you did with The Verge about how you kind of had envisioned the three possible tiers of success, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. I believe it was like uh, one was you make enough money from Thomas was alone to buy an iPad, right? That's and, right. And then it was like uh, taking your girlfriend Disney to World. Disney World. 
right? And then the the, the god tier was a year's salary, which, by the way, that is a big jump between tiers two and three, uh, Mike. Totally. No. Well, well, Disney World's more expensive when you're starting from the UK, remember? (laughs) It's an international flight, and I wasn't paid that much. So, like... (laughs) I see. So, you, so you're saying it's more graduated than I'm making it out to see. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know people that go to Disneyland like every weekend or used to in the pre-COVID era. You know, just to hang out. Um, I, I think. I think on while I was working on John Wick, I was, I was spending a lot of time in in LA, and I think I managed Disneyland four times in one year. Nice. So nice. yeah, that was, that was fun. That was good. So, uh, how did you come up with those tiers? I'm just curious. <laughs> like, and and what were you actually expecting to do? Like, how how well did you expect the game to actually do? I mean, I, genu- I genuinely was, I was, I was hoping for Disney World, like genu- genuinely, it sounds like false modesty, uh, you know, in retrospect, but like I genuinely, I, I figured it would sell, um, you know, maybe a couple of thousand copies and it would be enough that I could have a nice holiday um, and, and spend some time with my girlfriend. That was, that was ultimately kind of genuinely the goal. The, the year salary thing was, I guess, kind of there. It was one of those goals that I'd set so as to limit myself because I'd seen a lot of people uh, just quit their day jobs to try and make indie games and then right. fall on kind of times financially or or you know their game it didn't come together or it didn't sell. So I wanted to make like an arbitrary rule on myself, basically to stop myself from just quitting my day job and going and trying and you know being in a you know I, I'm. I'm someone who emphasizes, you know, financial security. It's, you know, I guess because my background, but I'm like, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to like be screwed financially. So I was, I was, I think I was putting these rules in place to say like, chill out, don't, don't get cocky here. <laughs> so so you, you basically set the one year salary in, in a way that was, in your opinion, unrealistically high. So that exactly, like, it's an impossible number. Because you're, you're like, not gonna I'm never going to hit that. So therefore. I'm never going to need to quit my job and you know do this on my own, basically. Exactly. Ex- basically, yeah. That, that, that was the that was the. And to be clear, like, and and these things kind of get truncated over time. It didn't make much money for the first like six months of release. Like it was, it came out. I think it came out in like July 2012, and by like November, I was just about to get Disney World money. Like I was. <laughs> It was a good chunk of time then. It's very easy in retrospect to kind of turn this into like overnight success. But right. it was it was I'd gone back to my day job. I was I was working my day job. I you know, I was comfortable. I was oh I, I liked my job at the time, you know, I was I was it was it was a joke in the office that I'd made a thing that people really liked, but hey, we we you we we will keep hold of you for a bit longer kind of thing. Yeah. And it was a nice it was just a nice thing I'd made that people liked that was gonna pay for a holiday next year. And that was genuinely my existence for six months after Thomas was alone came out. Um When and did then, you first start to realize that it was gonna catch on in a big way? Like what was the first sign that when you first, when you get an infusion of cash in your bank account that you're like, whoa, that's bigger than last month or what what happened? Well the big one that so the, the two big events that happened, the first was kind of the indicator, which was um, someone on Twitter started DMing, DMing me, asking me about the font choices in Thomas was alone. I was, and I, I'm a graphic design nerd. So I was like having a chat with him about like, Oh, I'll use this font, this font, this font. And after like a bit of back and forth, this guy, uh, kind of an anonymous person on, on the internet was just like, Oh, you should, you should put this on PlayStation. I'd love to play this on PlayStation. I was like, well, if you know anyone at Sony, mate, you know, let them know. Cause that'd be, I'd love that. And the guy kind of pulled off his digital disguise and it was a, a guy called Shahid who was at Sony. Um, and that's what let that, and that was kind of a, we like what you made and we'd love to get it on back then. They were trying to, they were making a lot, they were bringing a lot of indie games over to the Vita. So they wanted it on Vita. And I kind of said, well, I'll be on Vita, but I want to be on PS3 because that's like a proper console with a TV. Um, so I kind of, I, I that was an indicator that like, powerful people were starting to notice the game which was cool but the one that the what the moment where it, i mean it all changed was it's again sounds like nonsense in retrospect but it's genuinely true it was new year's eve um i was traveling home after new year's eve on the bus and um a youtuber called total biscuit put up a video about the game just kind of talking about it but he was a you know big youtuber um no longer with us unfortunately and he um and, and that and that video, I could see it was getting lots of views. Um, and I looked at like my sales graph on Steam, and it was going up and going up in like a way that was beyond what what it had ever done before. And I remember it was it was either at midnight, so I was looking at it throughout the night. And it was like I was at midnight or 
or around midnight where it literally hit the the year's salary in one night um, from a point of like, you know, barely anything to that. And I remember like, you know, the new, literally like new January 1st waking up and going, I guess I have to quit my job now. <laughs> um, and then, and then what was amazing was then like it made another year's salary that week. And by the time I went back into work, um, cause obviously we were away for Christmas, new years and breaks are a bit longer in the UK. Um, so went back kind of, I guess, January kind of fifth or sixth or seventh or something like that. And it was really picking up steam and people talking about it. I remember walking in, uh, walking over to my, my, uh, my, my bosses, like who was also like the boss of the company's desk, uh, saying, can I, can I have a quick chat? Him turning around with just this massive grin on his face and being like, it's time, isn't it? Taking me to a meeting room. And, uh, and, uh, and he was just lovely and just kind of like, yeah, we, we honestly, I'm a bit, I'm, a, I'm, I'm annoyed for you that it took this long, but yeah, good luck. Um, and it, and that was kind of the start of it. Um, oh, well, that's so nice. That's a, yeah, yeah no, really, lovely really lovely. Yeah. Um, so, it was, so that was the moment. That was the kind of the transition of like, oh, I guess this is a thing now. Uh, you know, I have so many more questions for you about Thomas was alone and stuff, but I, I want to make sure we get, have time to get to your more recent work. Um, I, I do want to ask you about John Wick Hex. Uh, mm -hmm. So how did John Wick Hex come about? I'm sure you've gotten this question a lot because <laughs> when you watch a movie like John Wick, which is mm. an action movie in which many people are killed, you're... And your initial <laughs> your your initial reaction is oh this might be fun as a as like a first person shooter or a dual stick shooter or something like that, mm. um, but you decided to go the turn based route with it, uh, mm. and so t tell us about how the idea to make it a turn based game came about, how involved you were with that, and who who had to convince who to make this game. Um, so it was, it was honestly, it, it wasn't much of a battle, which is still weird to me. Um, cause basically the way it came about was, um, we were finishing up, um, we were doing a couple of like shorter games. We made a couple of games called subsurface circular and quarantine circular, which were these kind of, they're kind of text based couple of hour long adventure games. They're, I don't know. They kind of, kind of like like a uh, text based kind of version of like the Bandersnatch Netflix kind of choose your own adventure stuff they've been doing. And those we we were finishing up those. And I went to uh, I went to the cinema with a mate, and uh, we were coming out, and and he again a lot of people like wear disguises in front of me. He was talking about John Wick, and I was it's one of my favorite movies. I was like I was I was talking about it and with him and chatting as we came out of the cinema. He was like, oh, what would you do with a game of that? And I said exactly what you said. I said, like, well, I guess it's obviously it's like a first-person shooter or something like that. But I was like, if I was to do it, I'd be a dick about it. And I do I, – I was like, if I were to do it, I'd do, like, a strategy thing. Because for me, the, the the brilliance of John Wick is that kind of meta level I watch it on where I'm watching amazing choreography, where I'm watching the best – you know, martial artists with amazing kind of choreography, navigating these spaces and making creative decisions and, and just, and, and how that plays out. Like it doesn't, the action scenes in John Wick don't look like anything else except all the stuff that's copying John Wick now. And I was like, that's, that's where I'd be really interested in digging in on like fight choreography. The game would be really interesting. Um, and the, the guy I was out with was a guy called um, Ben Andak, who's like, well, um, I've just been hired by a publisher to try and put together a John Wick game. Do you want to like pitch that to them? Them. they won't they won't be into it obviously it's it's a really pretentious idea but like by all means let's try um so we again like took it i, I honestly like i was like there's no way they're gonna let me do this so me and uh, a couple of people on my team just kind of we started fiddling with this idea kind of side building prototypes of like the game the core game loop and stuff um and i got some art commission we started just playing with the idea just you know spending a little bit of money just and time just kind of fiddling with this idea and then got the invite to go to Santa Monica and, and kind of pitch it to the Lionsgate people. And again, like, just, I was like, hey, this is going to be the best story in five years of the time that I was laughed out of a room in Hollywood. <laughs> um, and I just went along with this this prototype and, and immediately, very obviously realized, oh, this might actually work out because the guys from Lionsgate, fair play to them, were... They were, um, you know, I, I in like on that previous license stuff, I'd met people from like IP owners before. And usually it was kind of, it was very much like a, um, it was a lunchbox basically. They just wanted something they could put the logo on that would sell some copies to some confused parents in the store. And then it wouldn't, they weren't going to be good games necessarily, but like they'd sell. 
And this guy said the first thing that came out of a Lionsgate executive's mouth to me was, we want to make something that like is is cool and creative like Goldeneye. I was like, you just, I was like, even if this guy's just done a quick Google to find out what the cool games are that based on, based on franchises, he's chosen the right example. Like I was like, that's really interesting. That's the, that's the, the, a good... the Nintendo 64 Goldeneye is what he's referring to, I assume, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, which, which is a game. famously classic, yeah. brilliant game, um, ba- which happens to be based on James Bond. Um, and, uh, and and just him name-checking that, I was like, okay, they might actually want something interesting. So I pitched it, and, and in the room, it was basically like, yeah, I think we're going we're gonna to do this. And I, I spent the whole project, man, until we announced it, I was waiting to be cancelled. Like, to the extent that I'd said to the people at Lionsgate, like, like I get it. If if this this is too weird, we'll you know we're gonna go and make this anyway. Like if you if you we'll we'll remove all the John Wick stuff from it and we'll just release it as another game and no one in the world needs to know that this is what we're doing. And then you know you get to the day where we announce it and I'm as baffled as everyone else is that, that we're in this situation. Um, but it was it was amazing and it was an amazing. I think the big thing for me, the big takeaway for me, and I've got to give um, all the producers involved a lot of credit for this. The amount of access we actually got and the ability to kind of discuss stuff and you know i i was literally working on the game in the edit suite with chad the director and the editor while they were kind of piecing this together and chad's throwing in game ideas and 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 having really interesting kind of conversations with me about stuff and it was it's just that level of access you know training with the stunt team i say training with the stunt team having my ass kicked by the stunt team um in an, and i think some of that was even filmed for like the making of on the dvd which is incredibly embarrassing because i look i'm a mess um because <laughs> i'm not a physically fit person at all um but like yeah it was just an amazing learning experience amazing opportunity to kind of to go because as i've said to people like we could have gone and made like our version of a john wick game like this we could have made this game but the amount of stuff that's in this game and that is good in this game, specifically because of all of the insights we got from all those creative people while we were making it, was just phenomenal. And you don't ever get that. You don't get the access. You don't get to sit down with the people who actually make these movies normally. Normally, you're the lunchbox company. They don't put you in a room with the director of the movie. He's busy. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen. Um, and then to get, you know, a lot of the cast into our game and stuff like that. It was just, it was just a really interesting kind of creative collaboration. I got to I got to direct Ian McShane. That is something I'm always going to be very, very excited about whenever I, I remember it and it, does, it seems like someone else's memories. It's awesome. Yeah, because we should point out that there are, like, voice act like, the people in the movie do voice acting for the game. Um, yeah, and and yeah, it's it's the actual people. It's not like people who sound like mm-hmm. them, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, Lance doing uh, doing his part as well. Like, and then I brought in a guy called Troy Baker, who I've known for years, who I wanted to work with for a while, and 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 he uh, he he plays the villain. It's just it's just a lovely a lovely thing just to be able to give be given all that access. And yeah, you are constantly waiting. I remember being in the <laughs> being in the lift over to the recording studio to record Ian McShane and genuinely being certain that he wouldn't be there. Like, just genuinely, <laughs> like, there's no way. There's no way. And then he shows up and he's the amazing, lovely actor to work with. And he's he's telling me stories about Deadwood because I mentioned I was a fan. And it's just a lovely, lovely morning just working with someone really talented. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was just a lovely, lovely process, but it, but it was just a great learning opportunity. That's the big thing for me. I just, I've, I feel like I took away so much information about how modern action films are done and what, what, what they, what they're really good at and what we can learn from in the games industry. So I was, I was, I just had a great time with it. You know, hearing you talk about it, it does make a lot of sense that this is one of the properties that they ch- chose to extend the brand onto, you know, because, uh, John Wick is an action movie, but it, it is a more refined action movie. You know the it's a, it's a better pro- class of action. A movie, better class. It? The action. The protagonist wears extremely refined, high end suits while he's <laughs> killing people, and uh, in the, in a similar way, John Wick Hex, I think, uh, eschews the shall we say visceral nature of a first person shooter for something more refined and thoughtful. Um, I think, but I think that's also part of it's really it's something that fascinates me about Lionsgate is that they they basically I, I don't this is this might sound insulting I hope it doesn't I'll hear from them if it is um, but like I I they're kind of an indie film studio that keeps accidentally making hit movies <laughs> like their whole vibe and energy is they make weird stuff they don't you know that like the like can you imagine being in the room when someone pitched Hunger Games or John Wick or twilight even like like 
these kind of franchises that now we think of as these big franchises, but they're weird pitches. You know, I mean, the original John Wick is not a, you know, not a straightforward pitch for an action movie. Um, and I think that there's, I think there's something in that studio and in that culture there that they wanted creative solutions. They wanted kind of someone to come in and, and do weird stuff. I think they think of themselves in that way. And I think they, they actually are. So I, I was surprised by the lack of resistance to doing something interesting, but as I got to know them and got to know how Lionsgate produces stuff, I kind of got it. Like I got that, like that's how most of the Lionsgate stories have started. Like they've, they've had massive success when they've tried weird stuff. And I think that's kind of a cultural thing over there, which I found genuinely like refreshing and interesting because you, 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 you know, you go to Hollywood for the first time and start interacting with Hollywood people, you have preconceptions, right? Even Hollywood makes lots of stuff about how awful Hollywood is. And then when you meet people who actually want to do creative, interesting work, it's, it's incredibly exciting and you, you, you feel that energy. Uh, let's talk about uh, the most recent thing you put out, um, North Star mm. Rising. This is a podcast yeah. in which two humans find themselves on a space adventure. And uh, this is the first narrative fiction podcast that you've done. Uh, yeah. And at this point, you've uh, made many games. Um, and I'm curious... What was it that made you want to tell a story in this way versus as a game or something else that you've already done before? So we were in a weird position. So it re it I mean, definitely the elephant in the room is is the, the the current situation with the with the worldwide crisis. And essentially, what happened was so my 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 partner lives and works normally under normal circumstances in in Oregon in the U.S. And so I was visiting her, and this was back in. I think January, kind of early, very early February, maybe. And I'm someone who pays quite politically engaged, pays a lot of attention to to those things being talked about. And I was starting to hear about, you know, maybe this thing might actually start to hit Western space quite soon. Um, and also, I'm a nerd, and I just made a game about um, a viral outbreak. So I, I knew, I knew some of the words. Like I'm definitely not saying I was an expert, but I knew enough of the words and enough of the underlying maths. So I was like, I don't think this is nonsense. I think this might actually, I, 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 this might actually become a thing. And, and honestly, I had kind of a bit of a crisis in that moment because the world around me wasn't really noticing or caring about this. And I said, well, I want to be as someone who feels like I might be ahead of the curve in knowing something bad's going to happen. I want to be one of the people making entertainment and making stuff that might help because I have no practical skills. I make video games. I can't practically help anyone, but I can probably make some stuff that would like make people laugh or, or provide a bit of escapism. I think that's the role of creative people in a situation like this. Um, so I got to thinking and I, I had a sense of kind of the schedule and the time of like, if I'm right or if the people I'm listening to more importantly are right, then this will hit a bad place in X number of weeks. What can I produce that would be available to people that we could get out for free, that we could get out to everyone? Um, and a video game just wasn't going to work. There wasn't enough time to make something good enough or interesting enough or that would entertain the range of people we wanted to entertain. Um, so I started just looking around at what we were good at as a studio outside of that. Um, and I realized that we could kind of make a game, but take the game bit out and we'd have a radio play. Um, and we'd done that a few, we, most, you know, all of our games had voice acting, had kind of performance in them. And I thought, well, actually probably given the time we have, we could make something that would kind of provide entertainment in that way. And that's what we did. So we just kind of retooled basically, um, and, 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 I started writing and I was originally going to be a very, I remember pitching it to my business partner, like over the phone um, while I was in Portland excitedly, like I'm going to do Star Trek. We're going to do like a Star Trek. It's not going to be Star Trek because we, <laughs> we're not going to get the rights, but like, like I want to do like rip off Star Trek where it's like a, you know, next generation style kind of really, really coherent crew who are very professional and awesome and they never have any conflict. And it's going to be this uplifting thing. And so I writing it and realized, Oh, wow, writing Star Trek Next Generation is really hard because there's no conflict and there's no characters. And I'm way too hacky a writer to successfully write something as incredible as Next Gen. So then start going, okay, let's fall back to some more comfortable, okay, what am I good at? I'm good at writing kind of cheesy jokes and characters having conflict. Okay, so let's do something a bit more that leans towards the Douglas Adams, the end of the spectrum and is a bit more 
comedic and a bit more about people coming together um and then as the season goes on it kind of starts becoming a bit more star trek as it goes on because my confidence goes up basically with the writing but then just yeah gathering some friends gathering some 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 voice actors and kind of putting it together finding a piece of the music is from a guy called austin wintry um and he had that bit of music lying around because it was a, a pitch he made for the Star Trek Discovery theme tune. Uh, he was he was he was working on um, that, and they, they went in a different direction with the soundtrack to that show. But I knew that he had this amazing epic piece of sci-fi music that no one owned except him, and that maybe he'd want to have kind of hand to, hand to us for this. So kind of pulling things together, pulling together like Ian McHugh, who's amazing, an amazing um, sci-fi artist who came in and did, does a bunch of stuff for like Star Wars and that. And he, he had some sketches. And I was like, we could, that could be our ship. Can we polish that up? And just kind of basically kind of scrambling to build this stuff up, knowing that we only had, you know, unfortunately a couple of months until I really wanted this thing out and kind of entertaining people. Um, so that was, that was it really kind of put it together that way. Uh, it wasn't, I'm not trying to present it as like a noble thing, but it, like, it was definitely like a reaction of wanting to make something entertaining because I was worried we were going to need more entertainment soon. Mm. Yeah. And it's very cool. It's a hopeful story. And also mm. uh, you say to people who want to support uh, that, support it, that they should donate to food banks, I believe in, in the podcast. Right. So I that's think, right. Uh, I think it's, um, uh, trying to raise awareness while while entertaining people in a very challenging situation and for many of us that is the best that we can hope for at this point um so anyway uh mike i i could talk to you for another hour about stuff you've introduced so many uh interesting threads into my mind about uh, video game making but uh i want to let you go soon uh, let me ask you one last thing though uh mm. which is the uh Indie game space has obviously changed a lot since you first got into it. And you went from making a game yourself to now you run a studio. Uh, and I, I think, I know you're very passionate about this topic. So um, I do want to give you a chance to talk about it very briefly, which is um, that uh, what, what advice do you have for people who are like trying to make indie games or breaking into the game space now, uh, given how much has changed? Like what? What is it that you? What are the mistakes you see people making a lot? What would you tell them to do differently? Uh, I'm sure a lot of people look to you for advice. So, like, what generally is the advice that you give these days? I really struggle. I think the one, the reason I struggle with that particular question, one, because as you say, I do, I do get it a lot. The thing I always struggle with is I'm old school now. I'm like I'm like the the aging old generation of developers. Like, and I'm incredibly aware that like I came up in a completely kind of different industry and situation than, than people are now. Um, so I'm always super cautious because I don't want to kind of present and also very aware of like survivor bias and like, well, I did these things and I'm comfortable now. So I guess I'm a genius and you should do exactly what I did in order to succeed in the same way. And I see that a lot from, <laughs> I see that from too many of my peers who, who, who've fallen for their own kind of narrative a little bit. I, um, I, that's one of the big challenges of like a hit industry, like games mm. or movies or whatever. Um, even journalism to some degree is that like, the the path that you took to get to where you are often isn't available for people ten to twenty. That's years right. Later, there's right? there's no one, and, 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 and you, it's interesting. You see it because there's you know every every year or so an indie will make something that's like a a platformer about rectangles, and I'll just see all the comments it's getting of like, oh Thomas was alone did it, mate. And I'm watching. I'm literally watching the door I walked through slam in someone else's face. Mm. And it's and it is kind of it's something that I don't think. I don't think I can solve. So my usual advice genuinely in those situations is to do what I did. And <laughs> because they, I'm falling into the immediate trap, look to your peers. Don't listen to relatively old people like me who, <laughs> who, who are now on game. I don't know how many games my studios released at this point, like six or seven. Um, don't listen to me because I'm, I'm in a completely different situation than you are. Listen to your peers, look to where, um, people, other people are succeeding with with their games right now. I think we often we I, I would yeah don't pay attention to the elders. We're we're gonna we're gonna give bad advice. I think generally the the especially with games. I think more so than most other entertainment mediums. It's so it changes so much every day. It changes so much every second. Um, that essentially any specific advice I can give beyond make a good game and find an opportunity to sell it uh, is probably 
kind of massively dated and useless. Like, you know, a big part of my game success was tied to a specific YouTuber uh, talking about the game. That's that YouTuber makes your game a mega hit instantly thing. That hasn't really been true for like five years, but you still see people trying to kind of emulate that approach because they've read about it in an article. So yeah, I'm basically, I always say like the, the trick to what I did was I saw an opportunity. I saw what other people were doing. I saw something that I didn't think other people were taking advantage of in the sense of like making something as lo-fi as, as Thomas was alone. Uh, and I went for it. And and that's ultimately it. It's not so much about imitating the actions of people who've been successful because it's often that's just luck or, or the circumstances they were in. It's about looking at the thought process and the thought process is find a unique approach to the problem um, and, and try and work out something that other people are missing. Um, and that's still true from, that's still true of how we approach like which games we make now is we will actively go what's underserved or what's not, what's not working. But also, as you say, it's it's hit driven. So you could do exactly the same thing in 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 ninety nine out of a hundred universes where I made Thomas was alone. They failed. I just happened to be in the one where that didn't plan, where it did pan out. And that's that's awesome for me. I'm unfortunate for the other multiverse mics, but like I'm in a good position because of it. And I think and I and and that's worth stating because I think it also plays into the other part of it, which is. Um, uh, looking after yourself and, and being safe, like and and making sure that you you and the people you care about have you know as much financial security as we can have, as much kind of safety net as we can have, and, and working out how you can do this in a way that doesn't kill you. The the thing I keep going back to, I think we massively in games overemphasize and romanticize kind of working yourself to the to the bone. Like Thomas was alone. I worked every night after work for three years for hours every night making this game. And there's two ways of looking at that. You can look at that as a story about someone pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and getting stuff made, or you can look at it as a story about someone who was really lucky that that, that worked out. Because in, like I said, in every other universe, I wasted three years of my life, um, and I won't get that back. You know, and it's I think there's a there's a lot of balancing. And if I sound like I'm caveating everything, I guess that that is intentional. And it's part of it. But I think ultimately, yeah, the advice I give to people stay safe and comfortable and, and able to produce and don't kill yourself because it's just video games. But in the field of games, go and do something original that hasn't appealed, uh, that hasn't come up for anyone else yet. Um, that's see, that seems to be the most consistently good advice I've been able to give and look to your peers for how they're doing that. Yeah. And, and don't listen. Basically your advice is don't listen to your advice. It sounds like. Correct. It's a self-destructive. <laughs> it's a self-destroying it, advice. Is it true? <laughs> I read online that you were hospitalized while working on one of your games for, for exhaustion. Is that true? Um, it's like all of these stories, it got a little exaggerated. I was, <laughs> I, I, I was in, I was in the ER for like a night. Like I, I, I was, yeah, it was one, there was a, a game I made called Volume, which came out after Thomas was alone. I put myself under a lot of pressure because it was the difficult second album. Right. The difficult um, second so, album. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I was overworking and yeah, drinking a lot of energy drinks and just not looking after myself. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I wasn't doing great, but it was, but yeah, it, I, I, <laughs> I definitely don't want to make it into a soft story. I was, I was fine, but it was definitely one of those wake up calls of like, this might not be the healthiest way of living my life. And then definitely changed a lot of things based on that in, in how I approach my work and, 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 and especially now how I approach the responsibility of having people work for me. Um, you know, we don't do crunch for example, which is mm. an industry standard thing of most games companies do crunch. We, we actively, it's a joke on the team that if you're working past like 7 PM, you're going to get a private message from Mike on Slack telling you off for it. Oh. Um, and people, people adhere to that and, and it's good and it's it's nice we have a nice culture where we don't i don't want anyone who works for me to get sick because of their work because it's not worth it yeah you've been you've been there you don't want other people to go through it so exactly um, that's all we can do really i think is just learn from what's happened to us and try and leave things a bit better than we found them indeed indeed well mike biffle is the creator of thomas was alone and uh games such as volume subsurface circular earth shape and also the director of john wick hex his newest creation is a narrative fiction podcast, North Star Rising. Download it wherever your podcasts can be downloaded. Mike Bithell, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. It's the part of the show each week where I recommend something I've been listening to, watching, reading, smelling, drinking, etc. 
This week, I want to recommend an article to you over at Gen, which is a publication at medium.com. The headline of this article is Six Jobless Workers, Six Different Salary Levels, Zero End Insight. And this is an article by uh, Mary Uehara, uh, who spoke with six workers whose lost incomes range from $13,000 to $150,000 plus per year. Obviously, the coronavirus pandemic is hitting us all really, really differently and uh, hitting people from all aspects, all levels of society in different ways. And I thought this was just a fascinating piece uh, that would kind of give you a taste of how different people are experiencing the pandemic. I think we could all use a little bit more information, a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more empathy uh, for what is going on. Obviously, this is very serious, but I did ask Mike Biffle what he would recommend. Here's what he said. I've gotten really into uh, two things in the last 24 hours, and I will recommend both of them. Yes. One of them was is the is like virtual racing. Uh, so the there's the this uh, like because obviously no one's driving real cars. There's now this this thing where people are racing in video games, and you're actually seeing like these. Um, you know, I assume I'm not really a big racing car guy, but like these these excellent um, racing car drivers kind of racing in virtual environments. It's interesting. It's funny. There's a lot of drama. Some people are very good at it. Some people aren't. So I would recommend. Yeah. So like, um, what was the one I was watching? IndyCar iRacing Challenge. It ends amazingly oddly and very video gamey. Um, and then the and then the other thing I've been watching. I've been watching a lot of um, YouTube videos from a guy called Matt Baum, who's done this amazing um, series on uh, queer representation in uh, in like American sitcoms over the years. And that, that, that was absolutely fascinating. So Matt Baum, he's a, a YouTuber, he's very good. So I've been watching a lot of that. So I'm gonna recommend those two. Yeah, a YouTuber and a, and a racing, uh, <laughs> people racing in virtual cars. Really appreciated Mike Bithel stopping by Culturally Relevant and uh, do give him a shout out on Twitter. Let him know you enjoyed listening to him here if you did, in fact, enjoy this podcast. Thanks so much for listening this week. Again, you can always follow this podcast on Twitter at Show. That's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. Email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Thanks to Simplecast for powering this podcast. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytics solution. They are awesome. Thanks for listening to Culturally Relevant. I'll see you next week.